Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the glorious cross and how it's so energizing and um, encouraging. God lifts up our hearts as we lift up our eyes to you. And I pray, God, as we hear your word, that it will speak to each of our hearts today. Thank you so much for everyone that you've brought to our worship service today and for all those who are listening online as well. Pray, God, for much blessing and spiritual edification as we look to you once again in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. As we continue our sermon series of God's story of beginnings, we are in the corruption section. And last Sunday we saw that there were some colossal changes. Some of you weren't here last Sunday. So um, colossal changes in man's relationship with God. And this was after Adam and Eve's fall. They brought sin into the world. And along with that came shame and guilt and fear and hiding and discord and blame shifting. All this now characterized their relationship with their creator. So as the serpent sneakily said, uh, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did give them some knowledge. They now gained knowledge of what evil was. And it was through experience. They knew evil now firsthand. And this is where the lie came in, right? They wouldn't be like God. It wouldn't be godly wisdom. It is not being like God who is and has a holy divine knowledge of what good and evil is. No, they knew it through and by their experience. So their disobedience brought these cosmic changes, primarily alienation and separation from God. And this is the problem that all of us since that time have had. And it's the source and beginning of every other single problem in the entire history of the world, every single problem known to you and I and known to man. Every misery and immorality, every abuse and atheism, every depression and deception, every rage and rebellion, every vice and every violence, you name it, started there. But even though, like Humpty Dumpty, Adam and Eve's fall was a mighty big one that brought these colossal changes into the world, one thing did not change, and that's God himself. God himself. God did not change in holiness, his holy character, and God did not change in his love, his loving disposition toward Adam and Eve. And uh, that wonderful hymn, The Love of God, right? One of the verses says, God's love so sure shall still endure, so measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. For certain, God's promise that death would come upon them came true, as we talked about already, both spiritually and physically. Separation from God, this was the reality for them and for all the human race afterwards. But God did not kill them on the spot, did he? God didn't get rid of Eve and make another woman out of another of Adam's ribs. He didn't separate them from each other to live for 900 years of abandonment and betrayal. No, God's plan was greater, was grander, was more glorious. His love was to be shown in a deeper light, 
His attributes of unspeakable mercy and sovereign grace will be put on display. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as we know. It means beginnings. And I'll suggest to you this morning that we might think of it as gospel beginnings. Gospel beginnings. So there's going to be more on that later, but for now, I open with this because people tend to see God in one extreme or the other. And maybe this is uh, something of, that we struggle with. Hey, one group of people tends to focus on God is love. He's just loving. He's so gracious that he overlooks all sin. This group of people pride themselves on not being judgmental towards others, and they're pr- proud of their tolerance and their acceptance of everyone and anyone. Hey, their favorite verse is, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Hey, some people tend to wait and focus on that. The other group tends to emphasize God's judgment on sin and God's wrath against sin. They tend to be a little more stern and harsh towards others, sometimes even acting as judge over others. Their theme verse is, prepare to meet thy God, right? We should understand that both of those extremes are not biblical. They're not according to God's word. They're wrong, in fact. Okay, one ignores his holiness, and the other ignores his loving kindness. And I want us to see in Genesis chapter 3 today that the consequences that are placed on the guilty parties here come down from the hand of God, who is utterly holy and utterly loving. He's incredibly righteous, but he's also incredibly gracious. He is absolutely just, but he's amazingly merciful. Okay? Way, way more than you and I think he is. We don't think too much of his holiness and justice and righteousness, and we really don't think too much of his graciousness and his compassion and his love. We need to know him more, and we should see that in our text today and throughout the, the scripture. So, once again, our text is Genesis 3, verses 14 through 16. Uh, the passage actually goes to verse 17. Okay, these are the consequences for sin. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. We're only going to get to 16 today, to the serpent and to the woman. And um, next time we'll get to the man. All right? But if you are able, I'm going to read the, just three verses here, four verses. Um, if you can, stand with me as we honor God's word. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 17, I'm going to read. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17. Actually, I'm going to read down to verse 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Please be seated. So today we have some grave consequences from the hand of a gracious, holy God. And we're going to start with the serpent because that's where Yahweh Elohim starts, right? He speaks his judgment first to him. Notice right off that God doesn't find anything strange about talking to a serpent, to an animal. Why should we or anyone find it hard to believe that a literal talking snake was conversing with Eve before? God is literally speaking to it right now. And we do understand that this is Satan, either likely possessing the body of a serpent or Satan in serpent form. God pronounces judgment upon both serpent and Satan here. Why? Because he says, because you did this. You tempted Eve. You deceived her. You twisted my word. And again, Jesus calls Satan a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And just by the way, when we lie, even small lies, we are like the devil. So God says to him, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. This is important. All of creation was cursed after Adam and Eve's fall, including all the other animals. But God says to the serpent here, you're cursed more than any of them. The serpent will be worse off than the others. From now on, it's going to live and move on its belly and eat dust, so to speak, all its days. I mentioned last week, some of you heard it in the sermon, that Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, right? Um, Well, apparently, apparently the serpent did have legs before the fall. I don't know if it was a two-legged creature and was standing upright and as he approached Eve or four legs and did it that way, but not anymore. The serpent is cursed by God to be a creeping, crawling creature, traveling around on its stomach, eating dirt. These are physical curses that signify humiliation and defeat. Um, Eat my dust, you lowly creature. And so anytime we see a snake, uh, it should remind us of the fall of man and God's curse. Okay? It's uh, just National Geographic. You go to the zoo, you see one in your garden. Uh, we should, our thoughts should go there. So along with this clearly physical aspect of the curse on the serpent, there's also a spiritual element to it. Verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay? Why is it that most women don't like snakes very much? This could be the answer. I don't know if there's any women who really love snakes uh, in our group here. But anyway, uh, enmity means that one party is an enemy with the other. It signifies hostility or hostile intent, even to the severity or intent for murder. It can lead to that. It goes beyond just ladies generally disliking snakes. God is talking to Satan here on a spiritual, relational level. His new order in the world, after the fall, after Adam and Eve disobeyed, his new order in the world will now include this 
extreme animosity and hatred between the woman and the serpent, and further, God says, between your seed and her seed. And we should understand what God is talking about when he says this, right? Who is Satan's seed, anyway? Well, Satan's seed are those in the future who will reject God and follow him. And you recall that Jesus said this in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the who? The devil, right? Jesus was speaking to religious leaders and saying, you are like sons of your father, the devil. So it's not talking about physical seed here of a snake, but spiritual offspring of Satan. Those rejecting God and Christ, they're children of the devil. That's his seed. So there's going to be a battle going on between them and the seed of the woman. Okay, most directly and immediately, Eve's seed is Cain and Abel. Um, the conflict already starts with them. And guess what Cain is described like in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12? John, 1 John 3, verse 12, he's described as being of the evil one, talking about Satan. So there will be a long-standing battle between the spiritual offspring of Satan and godly believers, okay, those who are children of their heavenly Father. This ongoing war is going to culminate in what God pronounces next. He says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, this is the first mention and hint and glimpse of the redemption story of the Bible, where God reveals in a, a very introductory way that Satan will not triumph in the end. Yes, there's going to be enmity. There's going to be war, hostility, a struggle, a battle, conflict between Satan's seed and the woman's seed, mankind. And ultimately, ultimately, the, the, the serpent, Satan, will not prevail against the promised seed of the woman, who is none other than the Savior, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The identity of this descendant of Adam and Eve is clear in the rest of Scripture. It's hinted at here, right? But we read in genealogies, for example, like in Luke chapter 3, okay, the line of Jesus Christ is traced all the way back to Adam. Okay, Jesus is in the direct lineage of the woman. And the raging war finds its climax at the cross. And though it looks like Satan might have won, actually, the promised Savior will crush Satan on the head. Hey, the devil might get in a, a crippling strike on the heel hey, of this promised seed of the woman, but the Savior, who is the promised seed, is going to deliver the crushing blow, the blow to the head as promised right here in Genesis 3.15. Okay, this is known as the Proto-Evangelion. You might want to jot that one down. It's kind of a fancy word. It just means first good news, okay, first gospel, Proto-Evangelion. It's only hinted at. Okay, it's not fully explained yet. But the rest of God's story is an unfolding of this promise and this prophecy. Okay, this is the gospel beginnings of God's glorious plan of redemption and salvation for sinners. Hey, the next hint um, is Genesis 3.21. If you turn the page or look further there, 
It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, the first sacrifice for, for sinners and covering of sinners. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. But as the Old Testament progresses, God's story will reveal many more teachings, more predictions, more prophecies of the Savior to come. Some of them are direct. Some are very explicit. Some are less so. They're pictures and symbols of the Messiah Christ. And I just want to give you a brief survey. All right? So um, Noah's Ark, for instance, which pictures the Savior as the true ark into which sinners can enter and be kept safe from God's judgment. Right? We're going to get to that, too, in a few weeks. Genesis chapter 6, catastrophe, right? And 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21 uh, goes back to the story of Noah. In Genesis 22, the ram that Abraham offered as a substitute for his son Isaac, his one son, his only son, his beloved son, such incredible specific language used there in Genesis 22, it's pointing to God's one and only son. The Passover lambs, which pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God, who is the ultimate final sacrifice, Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 9, Jesus is called the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. The manna in the wilderness, when we get to Exodus, right, which pictures Jesus as the true bread from heaven, and Jesus himself alludes to that in John chapter 6, verse 32 to 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Also in Numbers 21, the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. This symbolizes Jesus' saving Death on the cross, which, again, he alludes to in John chapter 3, verse 14. And the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which happens next month, about a month from now. It pictures him both in the sacrifice on the altar and in the scapegoat that bore away sin. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. And lastly, the last one I'll give you is Jonah. Jonah emerging alive after three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish. This was a prophetic picture of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And he speaks of it in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. Okay, we could actually go on and on and on for quite some time with this, but this is just a smattering of pictures and promises and, and predictions of the Messiah, the Savior, to come, the seed of the woman. And Isaiah 53, I could go through the whole thing, but we won't for now. All right, so back to Genesis 3 here, verse 15. God's curse on Satan is the precious initial promise of the coming Messiah's victory over Satan and sin and death. Okay, Jesus is that seed of the woman who will crush him, crush him. 1 John 3, verse 8, right? The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. A New Testament, 1 John 3, verse 8. So in the end, God is going to judge Satan by casting him, throwing him into the lake of fire, a literal living hell where he will rightly suffer in that endlessly hot bath, a most torturous sauna, along with everyone who follows him. There's no reprieve for those who choose the prince of darkness over the prince of peace. 
But the holy, gracious God will send and offer his only son to redeem us, to forgive us, and bring us out of our sinful state into the marvelous light of his kingdom. And he offers that to everyone who does not believe even now and invites you to come and believe on his son. The curse on Satan reveals God's grace towards sinners. And that leads us into the next consequence for the woman. Verse 16. God speaks next to the next guilty party, Eve, the woman. And we know God is the one who's meeting out these consequences because he says, I will. I'm going to do it. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, Eve. In pain you will bring forth children. And when I looked at that just a little more carefully... Uh, made me realize that apparently there was already going to be some level of pain involved in bearing children, but now that pain is going to be greatly multiplied. Okay, this is the consequence for the woman. And by the way, only to women, okay, not birthing people. Right? There's going to be great pain in bringing forth children. This penalty imposed on Eve did not just affect her, but every woman after her who bears children. And we should remember that all sin is like that. We never sin in isolation. Even so-called secret sin, private sin, sins done in private, affects others. When people talk about consenting adults, or leaving people alone to do what they want in the privacy of their homes or their bedrooms, private lives, or they're not harming anyone else, okay, understand that this is unbiblical, utterly foolish talk. Sin always affects others, and many times not just one generation, but into the next. And we've seen that in our own society and what's happened over the many decades. So Eve's sin and its consequences of extreme pain in childbirth, which includes not just the delivery, not just the labor pains in delivery, but all the different challenges and difficulties throughout the pregnancy. And this is passed on to the rest of women who conceive, which probably our ladies here who have gone through pregnancy can personally attest to. And if you can't say amen and say ouch, right? Um, some people put uh, some, a list of the greatest degrees of pain known to man, and childbirth is, is uh, up there at the top, along with uh, breaking your femur, um, along with passing a kidney stone. Okay, I have not experienced any of those three things, but I will add stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night uh, in your kid's room. But um, there are about 10,000 babies born per day in the United States, uh, I'll have you know, in the world about 385,000 babies born per day. Praise God. But every single bundle of painful joy is a reminder of God's word way back in Genesis, way back in the garden, that he pronounced physical pain that mothers will endure. And that brings me to a, a thought question. And I offered a thought question at the end of last sermon. At the end of this point, I'm going to give you a a thought question. Why did God particularly impose this consequence for women? And why did God choose to particularly chastise the man with toil and sweat 
to make it so hard to be able to eat and to provide for him and his family? Well, I believe it's because these things represent the primary role of each sex. Okay, think about it. From the beginning, the wife's main role, biblically, is that of homemaker and mother. And the husband is to be the provider and protector. Okay, provider of food, provider of house, provider of shelter, provider of clothing, a protector against starvation and hunger. So God gives these particularly painful reminders of the consequences for sin to each in their respective roles and responsibilities. Um, I believe that that's the reason. It's a teaching tool. It's a reminder of what we sorely need to be reminded of even today in our feminist, egalitarian world. So along with this physical part of the curse, which affected pregnancies, the curse as applied to the woman also impacted her relationship with her husband. And can I acknowledge to you that the second half of this verse, verse 16, uh, is difficult to interpret? Okay, yet, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Okay, there's two main views which are most likely to be correct. Uh, the first is that in spite of the woman's increased pain in childbearing, she would continue to have desire for intimacy with her husband, a physical intimacy. And a couple reasons to commend this view. By the way, this is kind of like the minority view. A um, couple reasons, though, to commend it. The word desire is used in Song of Solomon 7, verse 10. Song of Solomon 7, verse 10 says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Same Hebrew word. It's actually only used three times in the whole Bible. Clearly, in Song of Solomon, it refers to the desire of the husband for his beloved wife. A specifically physical desire in context, if you read the rest of the verses. So since that's the clear, literal meaning of the word in Song of Solomon, it seems that's what it means in Genesis 3.16. Uh, second reason to commend this view is it also appears to be the most natural reading, okay, the plain interpretation. It naturally links this phrase to the punishment just mentioned in the first part of 16, right, of pain in childbirth. So I want to note that this view is it's not saying that desire for husband is part of the curse, okay, but it's explaining the conditions of relationship that will exist after the fall. Okay, listen, even though after their sin, the man and, woman's was, and, uh, man and woman's fellowship was marked by shame in their nakedness, right? And also, even though now extreme pain would accompany the process of childbirth, which, by the way, is the natural result of sexual intimacy, Yet, all that being the case, the woman will still possess a strong desire to be with the man. And it says the man will still rule over the woman. Still rule over the woman. Which simply means that he will remain, in the, uh, remain the authority in the relationship, same as before the fall. Okay? So that's one interpretation, one explanation, one view. The second feasible view is the one that most of us are more familiar with. Most of us here are more familiar with that the word desire in verse 16 is used in the same sense as the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 4, verse 7. 
and this, that's the only other occurrence in the Old Testament, where God is speaking to Cain, right, who is about to murder his brother. Uh, but God warns him. He says in verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So in, in Genesis 4, verse 7 that I just read, um, that it means desire, particularly desiring to dominate or to control. So using that nuance of the word, desire, it says that the consequence for the woman is that she will have a desire to dominate or control the man, but he will be ruling over her. And this makes sense because it seems to fit in well with the last phrase of verse 16, right? And he will rule over you. And also the close proximity to the same word, right? Genesis 3.16, Genesis 4, verse 7 is very near to each other. Um, that gives reason to understand it in the same sense as it is used um, in both places, right? To control and to dominate. Now, if that is the correct interpretation, it helps explain the battle of the sexes, right? And the struggle that happens within the marriage relationship. Okay, the tendency for wives to desire to control their husband, to take the leadership role that was not designed for her, and for the husband to dominate or to lord it over his wife. Neither of those sinful tendencies were in God's design when he created marriage, right? He created it, Genesis chapter 2, as a beautiful one flesh relationship with the husband lovingly leading and the wife lovingly submitting. The biblical instructions and roles for marriage remained, okay, again, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, and on, all tells us that. The husband must tenderly love and lead his wife, and the wife must honorably submit to her husband. Everybody listening? And um, let me just say that I've had my, my feet planted firmly in midair uh, between those, those two views. And uh, I'll just frankly say that even right now, it's, it's um, difficult for me to land, like, planted my, my feet firmly in either one of those views because I think there are very good exegetical arguments for both pros and cons to each. And both also express truths that are found elsewhere in Scripture. I tend to lean towards the second view, which most complementarians do. By complementarian, I, I, I mean that we believe that men and women are equal in value and worth and um, just in, in God's eyes and in, in general. And yet, God has designed them with distinct and different roles. Okay? By God. Um, to be clear, the last part of the verse, uh, and he will rule over you, okay, it's not a command from God for husbands to rule over their wives. <laughs> Talk about taking verses out of their context, right? Um, it does not mean that. It's saying that there's going to be struggle and discord in marriage relationships, and the husband should not abuse their authority in marriage, even though they are the leader. And wives need to fight their temptation or tendency to rule over their husbands. Both need to learn to love each other within the God-ordained roles that he has given. So I'll ask you one more time if you're still listening at this point. 
Um, and I've asked you this in weeks past. How are you doing in your marriage relationship? How are you doing, husbands? Are you loving and leading and learning, continuing to learn about your wife? Are you fighting the temptation to intimidate or to lord over or to abuse power, not listening to her, not considering her needs and her desires, her preferences? Speaking to myself too, FYI. Wives, are you fighting the temptation to boss your husband, to nag at him, to manipulate him, to control, not respecting him? Rather, are you honoring him and helping? Are you prior- prioritizing making a comfortable home for your husband? Perhaps God has brought this to our attention to make sure we are being honoring to Christ in the way that we are living as husbands and wives, those of us who are married here. And so these are the various punishments, consequences that were imposed on these sinners. But once again, this too was the grace of God. Remember, he would have been perfectly just to have killed them, Adam and Eve, outright. And that's what he promised in Genesis 2. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die in that day. And his holiness actually required death upon them. See, we don't, we don't see sin like that, do we? We see sin and we're like, oh, they should be forgiven. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, just whatever it is, we shouldn't judge. No, God's holiness requires that requires death, blood. But God is loving in his holiness, as I said in our introduction. His chastening and restraining hand in these consequences that we've seen tells us that there is a price for sin. What would happen if God just allowed us to go on as we please without any checks, without any consequences? Every single one of us would sin our way all the way into hell. That's the truth. God disciplines us to call our attention away from the pleasures of sin and to the reality of it. Dear people, sin is ugly, it's brutal, and it's defiling. Hey, understand that when you sin, when I sin, how unattractive we are. And it is unattractive mainly because it's an offense to an utterly holy, righteous, awesome, beautiful, loving God. And it's also awful because it hurts us and it hurts others. And as I said, sin never just affects you. It always affects other people. And by the way, to encourage you, those of you who are working out your salvation with fear and trembling and being sanctified and just spreading the gospel to people and working on your holiness, that is a gift to, to the church. It's a gift to one another. So nobody, nobody enjoys discipline, do they? Nobody likes chastisement. But please understand, it's a, a product of God's grace. Okay, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 says, My son, 
Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. You know why I discipline my children and why we disciplined our children when they were little? It's because I love them as their father. They're, they're not wrongly begotten children. They're, they're my children. I love them. I delight in them. Hebrews chapter 12 says the same thing, alluding to Proverbs 3. And Revelation 3, verse 19, last verse I'll give you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so, as we conclude here, yes, there are consequences for sin. We've seen them for the serpent and for the woman. Next time, we're going to see for the man. God hastens and chastens his will to make known. There is a price to be paid for sin. And God's will was to send his son to pay that price for us. Right? As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. The Messiah was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the chastisement for our sin, for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us every single one of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has gone his own way but guess what the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him on the promised seed the messiah our lord and savior jesus christ that's the holy love of god holy love of god the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Let's pray. Dear God, it brings much joy and uplifting of our spirits and our hearts today to know that you are holy, holy, holy. Uh, there is none like you and the earth is filled with your utterly holy glory and we joyfully sing O love of God how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forever more endure the saints and angels song what a privilege of your grace that we can sing as the armies the heavenly armies and Amazing that we can sing of your holiness and your love all in the same breath. We praise you, God, and thank you and ask for your help to apply the truths that we've heard today. Even if it was discipline, God, that we would do it gladly, humbly, to bring you glory and honor with our lives. In Christ's name, amen.